What's up, everybody? How you guys doing? Good to be with you this weekend for our book club kickoff. It might be raining outside, but it is warm in here. Am I right? All right. Uh, uh, so good to be back with you. I was obviously not well last week. Today's like my first day of being 100%, and so it's great to be here with you. Um, so excited for this series. We're kicking off a series called Book Club, um, and what you're going to hear is different books from different ones of us that have really shaped our life, our, mostly our theology, our relationship with Jesus. And so you're going to hear from different team members uh, from that. Next week, we actually have the author of the book, a good friend of mine and an advisor of our church going to be here. It's going to be fantastic. And so um, we have that coming in. And, and so today I picked a book that um, probably is the book that has shaped my life the most. It is the book I have read the most times. It is a book that uh, absolutely gave me a new perspective on the gospel, the heart of God. Uh, there's no book I've given away more than this one. It's a short book, which means it's a one for me. Uh, it's, it's simple, but it's deep. And, uh, and it's by probably my favorite modern day theologian author, uh, Dr. Tim Keller. And so this book today is Prodigal God. Um, what you should know about this is every week, whatever book we're talking about, we will have a link that you can purchase the book from the bookstore. We also have some hard copies on sale at the uh, Connect Desk. If you're online, we have a link as well. And so if there's a message or a book that resonates with you, we want you to be able to grab it. Um, I've encouraged our whole staff to pick one of these five books and chew on it and read it this summer to just grow in our depth. And so, um, Prodigal God, Tim Keller. I'll tell you this about uh, Tim, Tim Keller. Uh, if you don't know, um, really a modern day uh, theologian really shaped uh, the, the church narrative in this last modern day church uh, pastor, Redeemer Presbyterian Church for almost 30 years in New York City. He was kind of the pioneer of getting churches to really engage in their city, to love their city, love their neighbors, be engaged. In fact, we would e easily say that Cape Christian would be a contemporary of kind of that, that, that modality and unfortunately, he lost his life two weeks ago. He, uh, cancer got the best of him. He was so excited to be with Jesus. And so it's kind of an honor for me to preach one of his books. If you told me I could only read one author the rest of my life, it would be Tim Keller. Uh, and so his books are phenomenal. His most popular book is probably The Reason for God. Um, and so um, this book is phenomenal because it takes a story I'd heard my whole life in church and helped me understand that I read it wrong, understood it wrong, and it actually applies to everybody the other reason I love this book is because um, it relates to everybody. No matter who you are, this book is, is for us because the story, and it just highlights one story of Jesus. And so I'm going to dive in. We'll read a little bit from it. And I want to kind of give you the book report. But I really think that, that there's something in this for all of us. And so the book is called Prodigal God because it's his excerpt and narrative on the story in Luke chapter 15 that I would now call a tale of two sons, but historically in modern church would call it the prodigal son. We know it as the prodigal son, um, but again, you're going to find out in a minute that that's actually a very incomplete narrative. And so the book is the, called Prodigal God. And at the beginning of the book, he talks about what is the meaning and what is the definition of prodigal. And when you understand it, it kind of helps you understand the, the meaning of the book. And prodigal, uh, at its basic understanding of what that word is, the word prodigal literally just means either recklessly extravagant or somebody who spends everything they have. Now you're about to hear a story about a son who is recklessly extravagant and spends everything he has. But that's actually not the point of the story. The point of the story is a father who is even more recklessly extravagant 
and spends even more than he has. And so as we do almost every week, we're going to look at what was going on there and then. And then we're going to talk about what does it mean for us here and now. And so this parable is one of three stories Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. And you have to know the setting of the story. In Luke chapter 15, um, it says that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were criticizing Jesus because he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. So there's your two audiences. You got religious leaders and Pharisees, and you got sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus tells three stories in response to this criticism. And so we're going to read the parable, and then we're going to unpack it. Uh, and so uh, you guys ready to dive into this? Yeah. Yes, let's do it. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Let's dive into the prodigal God. Here's the story of the parable of two sons. Jesus continued, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered all of his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomachs with the pods that even the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went back to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him coming and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his son, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Me, uh, for this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25, we pick up the story. Meanwhile, somebody say meanwhile. meanwhile. The older son, somebody say older son, older was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and said, what's going on? Oh, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, said the father, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and now he's found. You might have heard this story growing up if you grew up in church, as did I. But there's a lot happening here, and the context and the setting of this story really, really matters. So I need somebody who's excited to be at church to say or type, there and then. There and then. So this story is about two brothers. This story is all about two brothers, and these brothers represent actually two different ways to be alienated from God. 
two different ways to live life, two different ways to seek acceptance in the kingdom. And as I mentioned, the setting and the tension happen in verse one and two. I mentioned it, but I'll read it to you really quick. It says this, this is how the chapter starts. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now here's what you have to understand. We have religious leaders and Pharisees, and we have sinners and tax collectors. There's your two audiences. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they represent the older brothers. Somebody say older brother. The sinners and tax collectors, they do their own thing. They ain't trying to follow a moral law. They're the younger brother. Somebody say younger brother. And so sinners and tax collectors didn't observe moral laws and purity laws. They engaged in wild living and they left home by leaving traditional purity and morality. That's the, that's the, 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 the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Or, I'm sorry, sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this is where it starts to get really good, they studied and obeyed scripture. They worshiped regularly. They prayed consistently. And, and so these were the older brothers. And what you have to understand is the accusation against Jesus is he would sit down and eat with the younger brothers. Well, in that culture, why does that matter? Because to sit down and to eat with someone was a sign of acceptance, especially in the ancient New East. And so we have to ask ourselves a question at the beginning of this story, at the beginning of this, of this book, who's this story about? And ultimately, who is this story directed to? Because my whole life growing up in church, I thought this was directed to wayward younger brothers. But who is he talking to? Pharisees and religious leaders who are making accusations. And so I want to read one excerpt out of the book. It's on page 10 in my book, uh, Prodigal God. Tim Keller says it this way. The target of this story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus is pleading not so much with the immoral outsiders as he is with the moral insiders. He wants to show them their blindness, their narrowness, and their self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. He goes on to say, no, the original listeners were not melted to tears by this story, but rather they were thunderstruck, they were offended, and they were infuriated. Jesus's purpose is not to warm our hearts, but it's actually to shatter our categories. Though this parable, the, through this parable, Jesus challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God, sin, and salvation. His story reveals the destructive self-centeredness of the younger brother, but also condemns the older brother's moralistic life in the strongest of terms. Jesus is saying that both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost. Both life paths are dead ends, and that every thought the human race has had about how to connect to God has been wrong. How's that for an attention getter? I read this book at a really important time in my life when God was kind of helping me to understand that um, to be moral and obedient didn't entitle me to a better life than those who were immoral and disobedient. That my love from him was not based on my achievements. And so this came at a perfect time in my spiritual development. So when we read this story, we're gonna kind of pull it apart a little bit. We're meant to compare and contrast these two brothers, older brother, younger brother, older brother, younger brother. So older brothers typically, or older, and when I say brother, you can know sister, of course, uh, as well. But older brother, sisters, typically, parent pleaser, right? They're typically responsible. They're typically rule followers. I said typically, some of you are already looking around. I said typically. I'm the oldest brother. I know I'm fun and energetic, but this is me. People please a rule follower. Why doesn't everybody just do the right thing? Younger brothers or sisters are typically 
free-spirited, rebellious, and they prefer the company and admiration of their peers than they do any sort of set of rules or morality. And so what's interesting about this is you have to understand when, when Jesus is telling this story, it's the beginning of the Jesus movement. Why does that matter? You've heard me say this before, but I want to explain what I mean. When Christianity started, it was a non-religion. What do I mean by a non-religion? In a part of the world where everybody had a temple and every temple had priests that would offer sacrifice and work and, and, and mediate the divine and do sacrifices, Christianity had none of these. They had no priests, they had no sacrifices, and they had no temple. And so they were, an ir they were irreligious. Why? Because what you have to understand with the movement of Christianity, Jesus was the final temple, he was the final priest, and he was the final sacrifice. And if you don't get anything else from that, this story, it's why, it's why in, in other uh, messages I've said there's no more sacred men, no more sacred places, because his spirit dwells within us because Jesus was the once and for all temple priest and sacrifice. So the Romans, you know what they called the first Christians? Atheists. No temple, no sacrifice, and no priest. And so in Jesus's life, those who were estranged from religion and morality mostly were intrigued and attracted to him, but those who were religious were kind of put off by him. In fact, in, John, in Luke 7, we see Jesus meet a sexual outcast and a religious person. In John 3 and 4, we see God, uh, Jesus meets a racial outcast and a religious person. We see in J Luke 19, Jesus meets a political outcast and a religious person. And in every single interaction, it's the outcast that is the one who connects to Jesus and the religious person is the one who does not. Fascinating. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus tells the religious people, or he tells uh, the Pharisees and the religious people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're gonna get to the kingdom before you do. You're starting to understand why people hated Jesus. Again, Rome didn't kill Jesus, the temple did. Why? Because he said and did things like this. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna break this down really quick and then we're gonna talk about what does this mean for us. Essentially, we have two acts here. Act one is the younger brother and act two is this, the older brother. Now the first act has three scenes. The second act has one scene. So let's just break this down and put it into terms again, there and then, because the more you know about there and then, the more this is gonna really hit home here and now. And I, again, I can't think of a better way to show the heart of God in the gospel than this story. And so uh, act one, somebody say Act one. Begins with a really alarming request. The younger son comes to him in verse 12 and says, give me my share of the estate. Why does this matter? Original listeners would have been shocked, amazed, and appalled at this request. Because in those days, the division of an estate only happened when a father had died. The only thing you had to hand on was your estate and your property. So to request it before he died is to say, I'd rather you be dead. I don't really care about our relationship. I only want the things that you're going to give me. It was ultimate disrespect. And so this is hugely disrespect. You also have to understand in these days, the oldest son always got a double portion of everything. We're gonna talk more about this in a minute. So if you had two sons, the oldest would have gotten two thirds and the youngest son would have gotten one third. Again, we'll talk a little bit about that more in the middle. I hear. Um, but to ask this while the father still lived, as I mentioned, was to, to wish him dead. And so essentially what the younger son is saying when he says this is he wants the father's things, but he doesn't want a relationship with the father. I only want the things the world or the kingdom can offer me, but I'm not interested in the relationship. His relationship is a means to an end to him getting the things he wants to enjoy his wealth. And he doesn't want the relationship he wants out now. So he just says, give me what is mine. But probably what's more um, almost uh, startling 
then the request is the father's response. Because in that day was a highly, intensely patriarchal society in where lavish expressions of deference uh, and respect for elders, especially your parents, was of supreme importance. And so a traditional, traditional Middle Eastern father that was met with that disrespect would have been well within his rights and would have been expected to push the son out of the family, beat him, verbally dismantle him, and tell him he was gone. And if he had killed the kid, nobody would have blamed him. True story. What's also really interesting about this is when he says, give me my property, that word, that Greek word property, I don't know why they translate it this way, is actually the Greek word bios, which is where we get the word life. And so the son isn't actually asking for his property, he's asking for his life. Because life, he knows, is in the father. And so what's remarkable about this is the father patiently endures a loss of honor and he endures the pain of rejected love. Now, ordinarily, when we get our love rejected, we get angry, we retaliate, we harden our hearts. But this father obtains and, and sustains his, his, his affection for the son and he bears the agony of losing him and the disrespect. So that's scene one is the utter disrespect. And to the shock of the audience, he gave it to him and he went away. So now we get to scene two. Somebody say scene two. Now we see the son go off into a far off country. We read the story. I don't need to get too much into it. But what does he do? It doesn't take him long. He squanders it all. He has a blast for a minute and hits some clubs, gets a little crazy, but it runs out quick. And he finds himself working with pigs, wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating. It gets real bad real quick because when you, far, when you venture away from home, it is fun for a minute, but it never lasts. And so he says, I've come up with a plan. I'm gonna come back and be a hired man. Why is hired man? This is really important. Hired man is really important because he knew he couldn't come back and even suggest he could be brought in as a son. There were three levels of people who worked on an estate. The sons who were the heirs, then you had slaves, and not what we know as slaves in our country, but these were more of indentured servants who were, would stay on the estate, earned a wage, and after a certain amount of years would get their freedom. So it was really indentured servitude. And then you had hired men. Hired men couldn't live on the estate. They only earned a wage. They lived somewhere else. They were the bottom tier. So you had sons, slaves, and then hired men. He says, I'll be a hired man. I can't suggest I live with dad, but I'll do this. And he says, basically, I know I don't have a right to come back into the family, but I at least want to pay back the cost and the dishonor that I bestowed upon you. So he's rehearsing the speech on his way back home. That's the end of scene two. That brings us to scene three. Somebody say scene three. Somebody over here say scene three. Thank you. I just, these guys are good. I want to make sure you're with us. This is probably the most remarkable part. Highly patriarchal society, all about honor and dignity. What does the father do? He sees him afar off and he runs. In those days, a patriarchal man of honor would never run. Because to run meant that they were desperate for something and you would never show desperation. You would also have to lift your robe. You would never show your legs. He undignifies himself so that he can restore and redeem his son. He forgoes his dignity, shows his emotions openly. Then he does a few things. What does he do? He gives him, he says, put the best robe on him. Why does that matter? Well, if the dad's still alive, who do you think the best robe belonged to? The dad. He says, give him the best robe. An unmistakable sign of restored standing, not as a hired man, not as a slave, but as a son. He's saying, I'm not going to wait till you've paid back the debt. I know you have done it all wrong, dishonored me, you've lost everything, but I'm not going to wait till you can pay me back. I don't want your payment back. I'm not going to make you work for it back. I don't want your services. I want you to know that you are still my son. I'm simply going to take you back. And so I'm going to cover your poverty. I'm going to cover your nakedness. I'm going to cover your shame and your disgrace. And I'm going to restore you back to the office of honor immediately. That's the heart of the father. 
And then he gives them a ring. Why does the ring matter? This isn't like some Lord of the Rings or whatever. The ring, every ring had a signet on it. It was how you did business as a representative of that family. It was the family signature. When he places the ring on him, it's not just like, oh, I don't really care about this ring. It was the family ring, another statement of you're back in the family and you can do business as, as, with my name as though you were me. And then the fatted calf, this part's crazy. Well, you have to understand in, in the ancient East, um, meals almost never included meat because of its expense and it was a delicacy. And when you did, it was almost always a goat. It was never a calf. Uh, there was no more meat, more delicate, more expensive than a cow, let alone a fatted calf. This would have been on the rarest occasions. It would have been the ultimate celebration. And most likely, if you were going to have a celebration that killed the fatted calf, the entire village would have been invited. This is a party. We're doing that all over again. The whole family, the whole community. Why? Because it's the restoration of the younger son. We want everybody to know my boy's back. And, and so we want everybody. It's such a scene. And it's such a great story. And it shows the heart of God towards older brothers who disrespect, dishonor, squander, don't care, self-evaluate. They live by their own rules and they come home. What's the heart of the father? He can't wait to bring you back home. What a great story. But that's just the intro of the story. It's actually not the point. But we have to understand all of this challenges all the older brothers with a really, really hard, startling message. And it's this, God's love, and, and, and you have to hear this, God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin and wrongdoing. Some of you, you need to hear that this weekend. God's love and God's forgiveness can pardon any and every kind of sin, wrongdoing, no matter why you left home, no matter how bad you were, no matter how far out you were, God is in the business of calling younger brothers home. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. In the Father's house, there's always room to spare. There's always room for more brothers and sisters to come home. And here's the best part. There is no amount of evil that God cannot pardon, and there is no sin that is a match for his grace. And so if you are far off, if you are evil, wild now. His grace is greater than your rebellion. His love is greater than your evil. And he is inviting you home. But that's just the intro. That leads us to act two. Somebody say, somebody in the middle say act two. Somebody online type act two. There we go. They're, they're always amazing online. You guys are amazing. Jesus didn't end the story here because here's the problem. There's no mention of atonement for sin. There's no need for a savior. So act one is actually showing us the freeness of God's grace. But act two shows us the costliness of that grace because now we have a feast and it should be everybody lives happily ever after, right? But now we have a new conflict that arises. With who? The older brothers, stinking older brothers. When the older brother hears that the younger brother is home, he's not excited, he's not happy. He is what? Furious. See, older brothers... People who have an older brother's spirit, they get mad when younger brothers come home. They get mad at the cost. They get mad at the grace. They don't have the heart of the father. Now it's his turn to disgrace the father. And here's where it gets really, really interesting. He refuses to go inside. Remember, we read that. To what would be the biggest feast probably of his lifetime with the fatted calf in the entire village there. For sure, the biggest feast his dad would ever throw. It's his public vote of disapproval. He now forces his father to leave the party in which he is the honored host, as well as the patriarch of the home and the Lord of the manor, which would have been just as disgraceful as having to run towards the younger son. The older, the father pleads with the older brother to do what? Come in, come home, come home. He pleads with the older brother the same plea that he had with the younger brother. 
come home. And what's the older brother upset about? He's especially upset about the cost. Ah, here's where we start to see motives. Because he says this in verse 29, he says, you've never even given me a small goat and a small party for my friends. Why is he upset about the cost? Ah, because when he said, give me, it says he divided his wealth. So when he divided the wealth at the beginning of the story, one third of it went where? Younger brother. Is it still there? No, it's gone. What's left? The two thirds. That's all there's left. So if he gets to be back in the family, who gets a third of this now? The younger brother now gets a third of the very diminished wealth that belongs to the older brother. And he's making a case for all that he's done. He's mad about it. I've worked myself to death. I've earned everything I've gotten. I've never done anything to disobey you. I've never done anything to dishonor you. Yet this guy dishonors you, runs away. You lavish it on him. I have rights. I deserve certain things is the cry of an older brother's spirit and an older brother heart. But perhaps the most disrespectful thing is the way he addresses his father. How did he address his father? Did he say, oh, honored father? And he says, look, look here. In those days, if you're in the audience, you'd be like, no, uh, did he beat him? Did he tell me he beat him? <laughs> in a culture where respect and deference for elders was the most important thing, this was outrageous. It would be literally that one statement would be the modern day equivalent to trying to destroy someone's reputation or career. So now the older son has just disowned the father as well. And again, the father responds with the same amazing tenderness, love, and compassion. He basically, he's saying, my son, despite the fact that you have now just completely insulted me publicly, I still want you inside at the feast. I didn't disown your younger brother, and I'm not going to disown you. I just want my boys home. So please swallow your pride, find some compassion, and come inside. And so the story ends with this question. Will you come inside or not? And then the story ends. I didn't not finish the story. Jesus didn't finish the story. If it was a Disney movie or an older Disney movie, it would have been, and he came inside and they all lived happily ever after and they hugged and built ships together or something. I don't know. But these are all the, the questions. Will you come inside or not? And then Jesus ends the story and the audience would have been like on the edge of their seat. They're like, finish the book, dude. You're like a pretty good storyteller. Will the family be reunited? Will there be unity and love once again? Will the brothers be reconciled? Will the older brother be softened by this remarkable offer from his father? These are the questions the audience would have had that was sitting listening to Jesus. And then the story ends. Why didn't Jesus finish the story? Why, did, why didn't he tell us what happened? Because who's the real audience in the story? The Pharisees and the religious leaders. It's the older brothers that he's talking to. He's pleading with his enemies to respond to his message with the same heart the father has. And the message is the question at the end of the story, and it's the same invitation to older religious and younger rebellious. Will you come home? I love this story because it's the simplest picture of the heart of Jesus, what the gospel is, and an invitation to no matter how good you've been and never disobeyed or how bad you've been and have never even obeyed, can't even spell obey. The invitation is from a loving father who doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you love, grace, compassion, and invites you to come home. Will you come home? So that's the context there and then. But what does it mean for us here and now? Somebody say here and now. Somebody online type here and now. Here's what you need to know. 
What I love is this story is ultimately a story about home. Now, when we say home, it means different things. But for us, home in this context, and, and you have to get this, is not a place. Home in this sense, when I say he invites them home, home is a relationship. Home is a place you belong, and home is a place that you're accepted. See, we all long for home. We all are longing for a place that we're accepted, we belong, and a relationship that is safe. See, the younger brother, we, the younger brothers want the things God provides, but they don't want God himself. Younger brothers want their independence. We want to live how we see fit. We want to live our own way. And we think that will give us our ultimate happiness. And some of the younger brothers and sisters, when things get bad enough, they decide to come home. See, the older brothers are the same way. We care about the father's things, but we don't really care about being with the father. See, at the end of the story, you see two brothers that are actually very similar. Both sons only want the father's things. They don't really care about a relationship with the father. The relationship is a means to get what they want. One tries to get what he wants by leaving and disobeying. One tries to get what he wants by staying and obeying. Both sons want the father's things. Neither son wants the father. So both the religious and the rebellious, the older and the younger are lost. Guess what else they have in common? They're both deeply loved and they're both invited home. One has tried to, they're both using the father to get what they want. One has done it by being bad. One has done it by being good. The thing that is keeping the older brother from the father is not his sin. What is it? It's his goodness. What did he say? I've never disobeyed you. I've never asked for anything. He believes his obedience entitles him to get certain things. The better I am, the more I listen and the more I obey, I'm entitled for you, God, to give me the life I want, give me the wealth I want, give me the things I want. The younger, he's trying to get control of the father's things through obedience. The younger brother tried to get control through disobedience. They're both trying to control. Again, one by leaving, one by staying, one by obeying, one by disobeying. The younger brother was trying to get control of the father by breaking all the rules. The older brother was trying to get control of the father by following all the rules. And Jesus says in this story that both sons are lost. Both sons are alienated from the father because both lack the desire for a relationship with the father. And the greatest mistake we can make in the church in religion is that we want the father's things, but we don't want the father. It's why I always say that the, the prosperity gospel is a bunch of crap. So these are the two sons. They're both alienated from God. And so we see from the story that there are two types of lostness, two types of people that are lost. So that's why Jesus puts the older brother in the story because it's not just about the younger brother. See, you can escape God actually as much through morality and religion as you can immorality and irreligion. Did you know that? And here's why this matters and it's why it's so personal to my heart as a kid who grew up in the church because there are a lot of Christians who have an older brother heart. We would say things like, I try hard, I'm obedient, I go to church, I try to serve Jesus. Therefore, and this is why that matters. Therefore, God, you owe it to me to answer my prayers and give me the things I think I deserve and I want. There's nothing wrong with the trying and obeying and serving, but why? Because it entitles you to more things or because you just want to be like the father. It's that language. And if that's the language of your heart, if that's the language of your heart, let me lovingly just say this. Jesus is your model. He's your example. He's probably your boss, but most likely he's not your savior. He's just a means to you getting what you want. You're actually really your own savior. What do I mean by that? You believe that you can actually be good enough to get the things you want and save yourself. Your morality and your religion you're using to get to God. 
uh, get to get to God's things, but not really to God. You're not actually in it for the relationships. See, older brothers obey God to get the things they want from God. And here's how you know you have an older spirit. When you don't get it, what you want or you think you deserve, they get really, really angry, especially at people who got it and especially at people who got it and didn't deserve it. If I have the heart of the father, I'm excited when younger brother and sister comes home. If I have an older brother's spirit, I'm like, when's it my turn? See, gospel-believing Christians, they obey God to get close to God. We, we follow God to get close to him, to resemble him, to know him, to be like him, and to delight in him. That's it. It's we get God to get God, not get God to get his stuff. But the most stunning thing about this parable is how it ends. The younger brother actually goes off and loses it. But what does he do? He humbles himself, right? He repents. He rehearses the I'm sorry speech, three countries across. He comes home and what happens? He's restored. But the older brother at the end of the story, where's he? He's still on the outside. So at the end of this story, you have an immoral, irreligious brother that's home and is restored. And you have a rule-following, religious, moral brother that's still outside. Which one's lost? The one outside. Which one's not home? The, one, the older brother. Which one's home? The younger brother. And Jesus' listeners know what Jesus' point is. See, most of us think God wants good people and he doesn't want bad people. But the truth is, God just wants new people. He wants older brothers to turn in their heart and he wants younger brothers to turn in their heart and say, I want to be made new again by the heart of my father. So there's room for everybody at the table. See, many think that the good are saved and the bad are lost, but they're both lost. And here's what I'll just say. And I was this, I'm a, I check every box, the older brother. The older brother's lostness is way more dangerous because it looks really good on the outside. But on the inside, it's nasty. Jealousy, angry, envy, never happy when somebody gets saved or baptized or restored or we help somebody. See, many of us were taught that we need to repent of our sins. And that's probably true. It is true. It's not probably, it is true. <laughs> but what we weren't taught, and what my journey has been, is some of us need to repent for the very reasons we ever did anything good. Some of you don't know what to do with that. I'll let you sit on that for a week. Not that you did, but why you did anything good. Did you do something good because it's the best way to live and you want to be like God? Or did you do something good because if I'm good enough, then I get a title or prestige or wealth or things. I want God's things. See, some of us need to repent of our sins to be saved, but some of us need to repent of why we've done things wrong to truly be saved in our heart. Who are the two sons in the story? Tax collector, Pharisees, right? You got younger and older. So real quick to close, there's two basic ways that as humanity... There's two basic ways throughout history that we have tried to make the world right, make ourselves right, and connect to God. And the first one is just self-discovery. We see this in our culture a lot. Self-discovery, I'm gonna live as I see fit. I'm gonna determine what's right and wrong for me, and I'm gonna find my true self. Self-discovery, younger brother. Or the other way that we try to make the world right, connect to God, make ourselves right, is moral conformity. I'm gonna be good, I'm gonna try hard to be good, and I'm gonna comply with all the moral code. Code, older brother. And here's what's interesting about both groups. They don't really like each other. And they both say, this is how everyone should live. And if everybody lives this way, it's going to make everybody happy. And Jesus says, you're both lost. You're both wrong. You're both far from home. There's two ways to be your own savior, moral conformity and self-discovery. Neither really work because both are trying to control the father and just using the father to get his stuff. Again, one did it by being bad. One did it by being good. 
Both are lost, both are alienated. But see, here's the interesting thing. The gospel of Jesus, and this is why we have such a hard time with it, is neither morality nor immorality. It's neither religion nor irreligion, and it's not something in the middle. It's something absolutely else entirely. And so, whether you're a younger brother here or sister listening, or an older brother or sister, the invitation is the same. Come home. It's not about where you fit in the category. It's that you're not inside. Come home. Be who God made you to be. Home, the relationship, where you belong, where you're accepted. And so why would a storyteller as good as Jesus not finish the story? Because he wants us to see ourselves in the story. This is participatory theater. He's hoping that we would ask, that we would long for something, that we would seek for something, that we would ask the question, so how do I come home? If I'm older, if I'm younger, if I'm lost, how do I come home? Because that's all that matters. Well, there's three things that need to happen. And some of them aren't even on you. Number one, the first that has, has to happen is the initiating love of God. Well, I got really good news for you. The father goes out to both. So that box is checked. Number two, we need to repent. We need to acknowledge our wrongness, our lostness. Some of us need to repent of all of our wrongs. And some of us need to repent of why we did things right. Because when you repent, you're transferring your trust in yourself to trust in God. That's really the most important part. It's I'm not trusting my way anymore. I'm trusting God. And so otherwise we're trusting ourselves for our own salvation, goodness, and righteousness, whether we know it or not. And then here's the most important part, and we close with this. We need to be melted and moved by the cost to bring us home. See, we haven't talked about the cost much, and this is the best part of the story. See, remember the story, remember the setting of the story, welcoming eating sinners and tax collectors. Those are the younger brothers. This story is actually the third of three stories that Jesus tells when they accuse him of that. The first one, a, a, a shepherd loses a sheep and somebody goes to get it. I don't know if you know this. In the second one, a woman loses a coin and she tears the house upside down to go get it. But in the third one, they lose a son, but nobody goes to get it. Why didn't anyone go get him? And the real question is who should have gone? See, everybody in that culture and that society knew the answer. It wasn't the father that should have gone to go get the son. You know who should have gotten him? The older brother. You know why? Because part of that two-thirds inheritance came the responsibility of keeping the family in stake, intact, in, in keeping the estate intact, making sure home is home, and taking care of any siblings that get lost or lose their way. But this younger brother in this story, he didn't get a good older brother. He didn't get the true older brother. He got a bad older brother. He got a religious leader and a Pharisee for an older brother. And so everybody in the story knew that he should have gone. In fact, if he was a good older brother, he would have went to the father and said, Father, my younger brother is gone, but I'm going to go rescue him. I'm going to set off and I'm going to be gone as long as it takes. And I'm going to do this at great cost to myself to bring him home. That's what a good older brother does. This guy got a Pharisee for an older brother. Why does that matter? Because we got a good older brother. See, we are all the younger brother and sister. And we didn't need just a brother who would go to another country. We needed a brother who would come from heaven to earth. We didn't need a brother who would just cost his wallet, but a brother who would give up his life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He went to the father and he said, they're all lost. They're all wrong. I, they, can't, they can't do it. And so Jesus, you know what he did? He came and he did it. He left heaven and came to earth. He earned the robe. He earned the ring. He earned the good standing. He earned the estate. And then he said, I'll give it up and I'll pay it all. I'll lose my life. I'll give it all. So the younger brothers and the younger sisters can all come home. That's the true older brother of Jesus. He didn't get a royal robe. He got stripped. He didn't get a fatted calf. He got vinegar 
And he didn't get a ring of honor. He got a crown of thorns. And his message is this. I came here, earned it all, and I gave up my whole inheritance for you. Whether you're an older brother or a younger brother, he did it for you. So in other words, salvation is absolutely free for us, but it's unbelievably costly for him. And he was willing to pay the price so that you and me could come home. On the cross, he didn't just die for our wrongdoings. He also died for all of our self-righteousness. And so the question at the end of this is, have you been moved and melted by what Jesus did to bring you home? Because to the degree that you have, it will change everything about the way you live your life and connect to God. Have you been moved and melted? Have you come home? And when you do, you'll be home. You won't be into moral conformity. You won't be into religion. You'll be a true Christian who has the heart of a father that wants God for God to be like God, to, to, to resemble him and to be close to him. At the end of this, it, it says they throw a feast, which is appropriate because that's what you do when somebody comes home. It's good, for your, it's good for your soul and it's good for your body. In Revelation, it says the true older brother is gonna come back and he's gonna make all things right again, wipe away every tear. Isaiah 25, Matthew 8, all over the Bible. And we're gonna have a feast where we all get to be home. And so my question for you as we close, what are you looking to find your significance in? What are you looking to find your security in? Maybe I would say it this way. What are you looking to to satisfy the deepest needs of your heart and love for meaning? It might be terrible things. It could be substance abuse and terrible habits. It might be your family or career or, or it could be good things, but it's not home. And there's nothing on this earth that can bear the weight of your soul needing what it needs other than the true older brother and the price he paid. And so the invitation is to come home. Why is the story end unfinished? Because how we respond to this message is the end of the story. What we will do as younger and older brothers is the end of the story. And the invitation is to come home. There's a true older brother. His name is Jesus. He lived it all, earned it all, paid it all, and gave it all for us to come home. And so the invitation no matter where you're at, is to come home. That's why it's one of my favorite books because everybody's a younger brother, older brother, or somewhere in between. All lost, all wrong, all deeply loved, all invited home. And so he's inviting you to come home. Will you come home? Maybe you're an older brother and you're still outside. Anger, judgment, envy, self-righteousness. Come home. Maybe you're a younger sister and you've literally squandered your life with wild living. Come home. The Father's waiting. The invitation is there. The feast is happening and we want you in on it. And so I wanna invite everybody, if you're comfortable, bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's just take one moment and let's respond to this beautiful story of what the heart of God is. If you're here today and you would say, I am not home. I'm, you might be a younger brother that's wildly living. You might be an older brother, sister that's outside and it's about self-righteousness and you're angry and you say, I needed this. I want to come home today. I want to come home. Pray for me. I just want you to slip your hand up and put it right back down. I need to come home. I see those hands online. You can click the hand. I see those hands. No matter where you're at, we're all going to accept the invitation to come home by saying this simple prayer. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good older brother, for sending Jesus to pay the price, to live the life so I could accept your grace. I'm coming home today. Forgive me of my sins and forgive me of why I ever did anything right for the wrong reasons. Give me your heart. Melt me with your love. 
Help me to live like a king at home. I want to be your son or daughter. I'm home. In Jesus' name, amen. Two things I would love to say to you uh, before you go is number one, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, you're coming home. We want to connect with you and help you walk this journey. Uh, we're not going to bombard you, but I do have a video and I'd love to, to, to follow up with you. And so before you leave or log off, just text Cape Yes to 94000 and we want to help you know what it's like to live as a kingdom citizen. Secondly, if you're here in this building and you need prayer for anything, we have a, a ministry team in our prayer room that would love to pray for you. We also have an online prayer room. Otherwise, thanks for being here uh, for week one of Book Club. God bless. Please be here next week. Pastor Rob's going to preach his book. You're going to love it. We'll see you guys next week.